So, folks, we're continuing our series this morning in the book of Isaiah. Remember, we're doing chapters 40 to 55. And uh, last week, we did all of chapter 40. This week, we're going to do all of chapter 41. So that's how we're going to march through it. I'm preaching whole chapters. Uh, And this week, we are in chapter 41. And so I'm going to read a portion of the chapter. I'm going to read... Verses 21 through 24. I'll ask if you'll stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Isaiah chapter 41. Let's read together in the presence of the Lord. Verses 21 to 24. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified." Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God's word against the idols of the nations. This is God's holy word for us as people. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading, and now, please, Lord, the preaching of your word. Get Wesley, out of the way and open up your truth so that we see you standing forth from your word. Teach us, mold us, shape us, change us into what you would have us to be. May your word go forth and may its its truths be written upon our hearts and evident in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have to say, it's not easy to get ordained as a Presbyterian minister. Dan, testify. <laughs> it is not simple. Uh, see, like I said, you know, I was in seminary for, for nine years, and I was in the ordination process that whole time. Now, you don't, it doesn't require nine years. That's just how I ended up doing it. But here's what you got to do. Here's a, here's a quick rundown of what it takes. First, you have to express to your session of your home church that you feel called to pastoral ministry. After they interview you, uh, they make a recommendation to the ministerial committee of the presbytery. And then you have to appear before that committee for an interview. And then you have to stand before the whole presbytery... Share your testimony, describe your sense of a call, and then you take some vows that the moderator walks you through in front of everybody. And at that point, you become a candidate for ordination. That's step one. That's step one to get your foot in the door. Uh, Once you finish that, you're officially considered a a candidate under care of the presbytery. Uh, You must be under care for at least a year. 
the next step is you have to graduate with a Master's of Divinity from a Reformed Seminary. Simple, right? That just, no problem. <laughs> Be a candidate for a year, go to school for at least three years, no problem. Get a, get a Master's degree. So that's the next step. After you finish your degree and you graduate, then you have to find a call from a church before you can do anything else. So they're not going to ordain you into nothing. They're going to ordain you into a church, which is kind of nice. You don't have all these ordained seminary grads just out there job hunting. Uh, they had to do that first. And then once a, once a church gives you a call, then the presbytery will let you take written exams. And there's like four or five of these, and they're kind of grueling. They're not simple. They're not short. You pass these written exams, and then if you do that, you have to appear before the ministerial committee again, and then they test you on the same stuff, but it's an oral exam, which adds a whole other dimension of pressure. Uh, and if you pass their exam, then you stand before the whole presbytery again, and if they remember you, because it's been nine years, <laughs> and then they get to ask you questions. Now, at the oral exam part, they can ask you any question that crosses their minds, and you have no way to prepare for this. They can just throw any random, what do you think about this obscure church father from the second century? Uh, what would you do in this really horrendous pastoral counseling scenario? Ah. <laughs> uh, and you're on the spot. That's where, if they smell blood in the water, the sharks will swarm and they will pounce. And so Pastor Ron told me when I was going through this, he said, keep your answers extremely concise and don't say one word that has, that's not related to their question. Otherwise, you're just giving them some rope to hang you with and they'll do it. And they'll do it. That was actually good advice. Because I have watched candidates just get destroyed in these, in these examinations. One misstep and they're all over you. So it, it's not simple to become a Presbyterian minister. It, it's a daunting process to get ordained, um, which is a good thing because it, it kind of filters out the people who aren't fully vetted, fully qualified. So if you get a, you know, whoever's ordained in the EPC or PCA or whatever the denomination is, you know they had to go through all this, and they've kind of been verified and vetted. They have the credentials. The hardest part of this whole process by far and the most intimidating is that oral exam, those two oral exams. Uh, when it's just a written test, you know, you have time to quietly sit back. Okay, I've got a six-hour time limit here. Uh, I can just kind of think about my answer. When you're in front of everybody and they ask you this question, the longer you pause and go, uh, the more horrible, the more horrible you feel. <laughs> and the more uncomfortable we all feel watching. We're just like, oh, it's a train wreck. You can't look away. That oral exam is not fun. Not fun at all. Uh, and if you say something crazy, it's over. I've seen this happen. In Isaiah 41, Yahweh, the God of Israel, summons the nations and their gods into a joint meeting for an oral exam. Isaiah 41 is a fun chapter. As we saw last week in chapter 40, God is seeking to comfort his people who have been exiled from their land by the Babylonians. And this section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 55, is addressed to the exiles of this period.
God's plan is to glorify Himself, as we saw last week. His plan is to glorify Himself as the, crea- as the comforter and the redeemer of His covenant people. That's His goal in these chapters. God's plan in chapter 41 is to continue comforting His people in their exile. How does He do that in this chapter? He does it by subjecting the nations and their gods to an excruciating oral exam in the presence of his people, Israel. And he does this, you can see in verse 1. Isaiah 41, verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. He's inviting them in. He says... Rest up, get your strength, and then come into this meeting, open your mouth, and we're going to judge what you say together. Oral exam time. He says this again in verse 21. He says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Yahweh God tightens the screws on the nations and their gods. He grills their gods. God is a savage interrogator. And he shows the pagan gods no mercy in this exam. What's the purpose of the exam? He says very clearly, verse 23, it says the purpose is so that we may know that you are gods. The exam is designed to show who is qualified to be the true God. The exam covers the qualifications for deity. If you think you are a god, this is what proves your deity credentials. This exam. Whoever passes the test will be certified as the true god, and whoever fails will be rejected as a false god, a mere idol. That's the primary purpose for examining the gods. Yahweh is out to prove to his people that the nations have no ultimate power over God and his purposes because their gods are nothing but idols. Yahweh alone, the God of Israel, is the living and true God. And the gods of the nations are false gods, vain pretenders to Yahweh's crown. And there is also a second purpose for examining the gods, and it's this. The results of this exam ought to motivate the people of God to have great comfort and tremendous confidence in the gospel proclamation we saw from chapter 40. From that herald of good news who announces, Behold your God, do not fear, salvation is at hand. We will see these two themes appear again and again in this series, in this section of Isaiah. God the Creator glorifies Himself in the overthrow of the false gods. And God the Redeemer glorifies Himself in the salvation of His chosen people. The examination of the gods in Isaiah 41 consists of Three questions. It's a much shorter exam than the one that I had to take. Just three questions. But this is all you need. Question one on the exam. Tell us who rules the nations. 
verses 1 through 7. Question 2, tell us who redeems his people, verses 8 through 20. Question 3, tell us who reveals the future, verses 21 to 29. Who rules the nations, who redeems his people, and who reveals the future? These questions lay out the qualifications to be the true God. You must be able to rule the nations, you must be able to redeem your people, and you must be able to reveal the future. The test is very simple to grade. If you can do those three things, you're the living and true God. If you can't, you're a false god, an idol. And as we turn to the scriptures this morning, let's listen in to this exam and see how the God of Israel is the only God who can pass this test. The first section of the exam is about who rules the nations, verses 1 through 7. Each nation, each race... Each people group in the ancient world had their native gods. Their own particular gods that they served in preference to all the other gods. As one ancient historian puts it, gods run in the blood. You have tribal gods and they are part of your race, ethnicity, people group. You are the people you are because you are bound in the same family with the God you have. And that defines you. The gods and what we call religion dictated everything in the ancient world. Politics, culture, society, it was all God-based. Gods-based. The nations believed that all gods exist. All of them exist. That people's God and those people's God and that nation's God. All gods exist in the ancient world. But one or more gods in particular were their own special gods. So we're a nation. You have y'all's gods. And we have our particular special God that we worship especially. We believe in yours and, we're, and we'll respect them. But we worship this one. As far as the nations were concerned in the ancient world, the God of Israel was just one more tribal deity. Just one more local God who belonged especially to the Jews. Now every nation wanted to believe that their own God was the supreme God, the special God, the favored one over all the others. And this oral exam asks the nations to identify who that God really is. Who is that special God? Who is that true God over all the others? You think it's yours? Let's see. The true God who rules the nations exercises lordship over the course of history and over the affairs of men. The nations, from verse 1, or the coastlands and the peoples, from verse 1, includes all tribes, all languages, all people groups, all ethnicities. The nations includes all governments, all politics, all societies, all cultures, all economic systems, all laws and wars. The ruler of the nations must be sovereign and supreme over the world, 
and all the people, places, things, and events in the world. So tell us, you gods of the nations, who truly rules the nations? Is it you? Let's find out. At this particular point in history in the text, the Babylonians who had conquered and exiled the Israelites, they had themselves been conquered by the Persians. So ancient Babylonians are from what is today modern-day Iraq. Ancient Persians, more or less, are from what's today Iran. Babylonians conquered Israel. Persians conquered Babylonians. The man who led Persia to conquer the Babylonian Empire was a man named Cyrus. Cyrus. No one could withstand the armies of Cyrus. Isaiah refers to the victories of Cyrus in our passage without mentioning his name. He will mention Cyrus by name later in the book in chapters 44 and 45. Look at verses 2 through 4. He's talking about Cyrus. God says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong chapter. That's 42. That was not about Cyrus. <laughs> Hint for next week. That's about Jesus. Verse 2 of the right chapter. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? So he's saying, asking, who stirred up one from the east? That's Cyrus, the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. God asks the idols if any of them are responsible for Cyrus and the victories of the Persians. He says, who stirred him up, verse 2? Who stirred one up from the east? Who stirred up Cyrus? Who moved the heart of Cyrus to go to war? Proverbs says, the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he directs it like a channel of water wherever he wants it to go. Who stirred up Cyrus so that he would go to war? He asks, he, he says, he, God, gives up nations before him. Who handed over his enemies to Cyrus? Who stirred him up to go to war? Who handed over his enemies to him to give him victory? God asks, who has performed and done this? Who brought all this about? This war between Persia and Babylon. This conquest by Cyrus. It says, who performed and done this? Who is responsible for bringing this about in world history? And then he says, he calls the generations from the beginning in verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Calling the generations from the beginning. Who has foreordained all this from the beginning? Calling all these generations from the very beginning. Who is responsible for this? 
Those are the questions he's now asking under this first big general question about who rules the nations. Who stirred up Cyrus? Who gave him victory over all these other nations? Who has performed this? Who did this from the beginning? Who called this from the beginning? Now look at verses 5 to 7. It says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. He's describing the construction of an idol. The nations that stand in Cyrus's way are terrified. And so they cry out to their gods for help. Their gods could not protect them from Cyrus and the Persian armies. But perhaps the gods of the nations can redeem them. You couldn't keep us from losing to Cyrus, but maybe you can redeem us. Maybe you can save us. Maybe you can rescue us from Cyrus. And that brings us now to the next section of the book or of the chapter. And the next question in the exam. The true God is the ruler of the nations. Yahweh, the God of Israel, stirred up Cyrus. Yahweh, the God of Israel, gives these nations into the hands of Cyrus. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has performed and done this and called this from the beginning. The true God is the ruler of the nations, but the true God is also the redeemer of his people. In verses 5 through 7, the nations cry out to their idols. To redeem them, can they pass the test? While the nations are looking to their gods, Yahweh now speaks directly to his people and reassures them that he alone is the true God and that he is their all-sufficient redeemer. Therefore, have no fear, O people of God. Trust in the Lord your God. He is able to save He will strengthen. He can sustain you, unlike the idols of the nations. God begins this section, verses 8 through 20, by reminding Israel of their election as the covenant people of God. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, after they cry out to their idols in verse 7, God says to his people in verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. This is God reminding Israel, you are my chosen, elect, treasured people. And then he summarizes three ways that God redeems his elect. He summarizes them in verse 10. He says, Because you're my elect, therefore, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And here's the three. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Strengthen, help, and uphold. These are the three. And each of these three is unpacked at greater length in the rest of this section. 
So let me summarize. Rather than going verse by verse, let me summarize what these three are. The first way God redeems His people, verses 11 to 13. He says, Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I will, or I am the one who helps you. Here's what we learn from this. Here's the doctrine. God gives His people strength to withstand their enemies. How does God redeem His people? The step one is He strengthens them. He gives them the strength to withstand their enemies. And that means that God, if we apply this to ourselves, God will strengthen you against the assaults of your enemy, the devil. It's so interesting, didn't we talk about some of this stuff? Deliver us from temptation in Sunday school today. How these things link up. We talked about what it means to pray, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God gives strength to His people to withstand their enemies. That's part of the way He redeems us. And that means God strengthens you against the assaults of your enemy, the devil. When you're tempted... Tap into God's promised strength to overcome. When your enemy comes against you with temptation, and you cry out for deliverance, tap in to that strength that God promises to give to His chosen people to redeem them from the dark hour of trial. God will strengthen His people. Second way God redeems, this is verses 14 through 16. It says, fear not, you worm, Jacob. Love that. It's not very pleasant, but it's true. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. Here God is telling Israel, I'm going to give you help not just strength to endure the assaults of your enemy, I'm going to help you to subdue your land. It talks about making you like a threshing sledge, new and sharp and having teeth. God gives His people teeth to go on the offensive. We're not just passive believers who are just like, the devil's knocking me on this side and the flesh is tempting me from the inside and the world's beating me down from, from up here and... And I'm just always on the defensive. I'm always crushed. I'm always weak. I'm always trying to just not fall into that temptation and not screw it up today and, and just eke my way by and just do the minimum to be obedient. And, and we do have strength when we're in that posture, but we don't always live there, do we? 
God gives us power. He gives us teeth to attack, to go on the offensive, to make war on our indwelling sin. To not just be happy to maintain a status quo of weak faith and weak walk with the Lord. He actually gives us power to smash and attack and get a victory over these things we struggle with. God gives His people help in this text to subdue their land, to take back their land. And you are to take back what the enemy has taken from you. God helps you to conquer that indwelling sin that still clings to you. He will, he will enable you to stand. And not just to stand, but to advance. And oh, that we would get there. I've had conversations like in men's Bible study. We talked about this. How do we go from just getting by and not messing up today to actually getting in that next level of obedience and power and victory? How do we get there? God promises He can get us there. He redeems us from the assaults of our enemies, but He also redeems us from just being a weak Christian and can make us a strong, victorious, powerful, spiritual warrior, putting on the whole armor of God, as Paul says, and marching forward, not just always playing defense. So remember the last part of, the, of, this, of this section where it says, at the end, in verse 16, you'll scatter the... You shall winnow them, and the wind will carry them away. The tempest will scatter them. And look at the result at the end of verse 16. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. So remember, Christian, that sanctification, advancing in holiness, is not the path to drudgery and boredom it is the path to joy. It is a path to joy. First John says, loving God means keeping His commandments. And then it says, His commandments are not a burden. If you're born again, this is not burdensome. Oh, geez, I guess I have to obey and you know, I'm a Christian. I mean, what is that? Who are you serving with that? It's not a drudgery to the soul that's been born again who lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God, who cherishes the law of God and wants to run in all the ways that please the Lord. Sanctification is a path to joy. So don't miss out. Don't miss out. God redeems His people three ways. He will strengthen you to withstand the assaults of your enemy and He will help you to advance in your Christian walk. And lead you into deeper realms of joy and satisfaction and contentment in your life with the Lord. And third, verses 17 through 20, God will uphold you. It says, when the poor and needy seek water, verse 17, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive tree. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. 
The Holy One of Israel has created it. God will uphold you. That means God in this passage, He promises to Israel, I will give you my people, my elect. I will give you all the help you need to endure in the desert. They are exiled, and now they have to come through a wilderness again, as it were, when they come back to their land. They came out of Egypt and came into 40 years in the desert, finally made it to Canaan. Now they're coming out of Babylon and Persia, and they're marching uh, west, heading towards the promised land again. And they've got to go through a wilderness, as it were, again. But he says, I'm going to take care of you in the wilderness, just like I did the first time. I will uphold you. I will give you all you need to endure in the wilderness. And for us today, God says, I will uphold you, Christian. I will uphold you through your deserts and your wildernesses and your sufferings. I will be with you and I will provide. It says, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. Do you ever in your Christian life feel like that? Just needy, defeated, dying of thirst. Why is there just no life in me anymore? Why is there no satisfaction anymore? Why is my Christian life just so dried up? And you feel like poor and needy looking for that water of life. And there is none. And your tongue is parched with thirst. This says, I the Lord will answer them. I the God of Israel will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights. I will make the desert into a pool of water. God can work in whatever circumstances you're going through. And He can bring life where there is none. And He can provide water in your wilderness. He can sustain you. He can see to it that you make it through this wilderness world and make it to your promised land. The ultimate inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. He will see to it that you can endure to the end faithfully and make it to the end where you receive your inheritance. He will strengthen you, Christian. He will help you. He will uphold you. These are the ways that God redeemed His people in Isaiah. These are the ways He can redeem us here and now. And the results of this second question in the examination of the gods is abundantly clear. When the nations witness the redemption of the Israelites from conquest and exile and they see them back in their land with great victory and prosperity and joy, that will prove that Yahweh alone is the true God. And all the others are idols. And God proves Himself again and again each time He takes care of you. Why does God take care of you, Christian? It glorifies Him to be your perfect Savior. That way God gets all the glory and you get all the salvation and that's the best possible world. God is more glorious the more perfectly He saves you. So we pray, God, glorify yourself as much as you can because I need that much saving. It's perfect. <laughs> He's thought of everything. He gets the glory you get the salvation and the eternal joy. 
And that's the best arrangement there is. He proves himself glorious for you and to all your neighbors and family and friends. The more he delivers you, the more glorious he gets. Verse 20. He does all this, verse 20, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God gets the glory in the end. So far, the gods of the nations aren't doing very well in this oral exam. They're flunking. They've, they've bombed the first two questions. They cannot uh, rule the nations, and they can't redeem their people. They're powerless against the Persians and against Cyrus. Who rules the nations? Yahweh alone has sovereign lordship over all things. The false gods are lords of nothing. Who redeems his people? Yahweh alone strengthens and helps and upholds his chosen people. The false gods can save no one. They rule nothing, they save no one. Now we come to the third and final question. In the examination of the gods, Yahweh says, Tell us who reveals the future. This last question absolutely settles the matter. If there was any doubt before, this last one settles it. Any being that has any claim to divinity whatsoever must have perfect knowledge of the future. C.S. Lewis said, anyone who believes in God at all believes he knows what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow. I like that. Any God worthy of the name knows what's going to happen, knows the future. So he challenges the idols. Tell us. Tell us what's coming next. Tell me what anyone's going to do for lunch tomorrow. So we can know that, you're probably, that you might be a God. Give us a hint. What's coming? Verse 21. He says to these idols, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Indisputable proof that someone is the true God is having complete knowledge of all things. Verses 22 and 23. Let them bring them these proofs and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. So notice the three things about the nature of God's knowledge of the future, or just God's knowledge here. He said, the true God knows the future, verse, verse 22, 23. The true God knows the future. Second, the true God knows the past and why the past happened the way it did. A lot of times in our lives, we kind of mention this in Sunday school too. Something happens, you think, why did that happen to me? Or why did that, why, why, what's going on here? Why did that happen? And you can look back over your life and think, why did that happen and that happen and this and that? And it could be real fuzzy and, and mysterious. Why, why have things happened in the past? My past, your past, the world's past. Why have things happened just so? And God says, if you're a God, tell us the outcome of these things. Don't just tell us what happened. 
Tell us why they happened. God knows why everything has happened. Can you tell us, gods? Anyone? Don't just tell us what's going to happen. Tell us why what already happened, happened. The outcome of these things, he says, so that we can consider it. And third, God, the true God knows the future. The true God knows the past and why it happened. And then third, the true God knows what to do with this knowledge. You see that in verse 23? He says, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm. Use your knowledge for good. Use it for ill. Can you, can you use your knowledge? Can you act? Can you do anything? Idols? This is the challenge. And finally, the chapter ends with God recalling the very first point he made about his sovereign power over the nations and over the actions of Cyrus in verse 25. He says, I stirred up one. Remember the first question? Who stirred up Cyrus? Now he answers, I stirred up one from the north and he has come. From the rising of the sun. And he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar. As the potter treads clay. And then God says in verses 26 and 27. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know. And beforehand that we might say he's right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. You see, God knows the whole future because God has decreed the whole future. God is sovereign over the whole future, just like He was sovereign over the whole past. That's why He can know it with complete certainty. That's why He can give perfectly accurate predictive prophecy to His servants, the prophets. If He didn't have any say over what ultimately comes to pass, He could never guarantee that His word will never fail. If God is not ultimately in charge and in control of what happens, then He cannot ultimately know what's going to happen. Because maybe there's something He didn't account for that kind of slipped out of His grasp. Whatever is outside His control must ultimately be somewhat uncertain, even for God. However, Yahweh has unquestionable lordship over all things. And thus his knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, is utterly certain, utterly perfect, utterly complete, unlike the gods of the nations. Verse 28. But when I look, there's no one. Among these idols, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. So now we're at the end of the exam. You idols are horrendous at being God. That's the conclusion. You're awful. You didn't get a single question right. You can't do any of this. If we were watching this Presbytery exam, it would be so painful 
so, so awful to watch this happen. These gods have absolutely no answers. They're terrible at being gods. So here's the final conclusion of the exam. And we'll end with this. What are the final results of the examination of the gods? Isaiah tells us in two places in this chapter. Verse 24. He says, Behold, he speaks directly to the idols, Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. You got a zero minus. That's your grade. Negative zero. Okay? If that's possible. You, did, you, you lost all points. And then he ends verse 24 by saying, An abomination is he who chooses you. God hates idolatry. Verse 24, Yahweh says to these nations, You're nothing. Your grade is less than nothing. And anyone who still worships you after this as a true God is an abomination. And then he says in verse 29, Last verse of the chapter. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their work, their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Christian, you serve the only living and true God. Everything else in this world is an idol. Every other contender is an idol. So flee your idolatry and worship your great God, the all-glorious creator and redeemer of his elect. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you to fend off the assaults of your enemy, to advance and attack your remaining sins in the Christian life, to gain the joy that sanctification brings. And then when you go through deserts and wildernesses and trials and struggles and everything feels dry and lifeless he will bring water out of the rocks to feed your thirsty soul in Christ trust in him for he is with you he is the true God and there is no other let's pray Father, we do praise and glorify you today and we acknowledge you as our only God, the only true God, the only God who has the credentials, the qualifications to pass the exam and to be the real God. No other God, no other pretender to your crown, no other rival to your throne stands a chance. They cannot rule the nations. They have no power. To control anything. They are lords of nothing. They cannot redeem us. They cannot save us. Oh the idols of this world. They promise us so much. So many empty deceptive promises. That they'll deliver us from this personal hell that we're going through. Or this personal thing we're going through. Or this thing in the world. So many pretender saviors. So many false gospels. So many voices clamoring for our faith. And our allegiance. But they're all empty. They are wind. That wisps by. And cannot redeem. And cannot help. And cannot save. Spare us. Save us from our idolatry. Keep us safe from the snares of the world. And the enemy. 
No God can rule the nations but you. No God can redeem and help us and bring us home to glory. None but you, our God and Father, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. None but you. No other God knows the past, the present, and the future with complete perfection and knows what to do with that knowledge to glorify himself and bring about his good and wise purposes, his holy will, to work all things together for our good and bring us home to our inheritance. No other God knows why all the stuff in the world goes on. No one knows exactly where it's headed. No one can say, but you know all things. You have power over all things. You are sovereign and supreme, and we are your chosen people. And oh, give us the joy that that should bring, and the confidence that should bring, and the contentment knowing that you are our God and we are your people and we belong to you forever, the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.